So Romans chapter 8, for our next installment in this series, uh, verses 14 through 17, under the heading of the Spirit of Adoption. So, again, our focus is going to be on verse 14 through 17. Let's begin our reading. As has been our custom, as we work on memorizing this great chapter together as a church family, in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery... To fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. That we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. And fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him. In order that we may also be glorified with him. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Uh, B.B. Warfield famously and appropriately dubbed John Calvin the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Uh, That is because the person and the work of the Holy Spirit are um, expounded in greater detail and, and clarity and nuance in Calvin's institutes than any other writing before or since. So he's the theologian of the Holy Spirit. And with that in mind, we should 
We should care what Calvin has to say when he comes to the Holy Spirit in the Institutes. And there's a section where he lists the names of the Spirit given in the Scriptures. And he lists them in order of importance, not in the order that we come across them in Scriptures, in the Scripture. And do you know what Calvin says is the first name that we should um, pay attention to, given to the Holy Spirit? It's the phrase that we find right here in verse 15 of our text, the spirit of adoption. First, Calvin writes, he is called the spirit of adoption because he is the witness to us of the free benevolence of God with which God the Father has embraced us in his beloved only begotten son to become a father to us. That's, that's where Calvin begins. Uh, Now, why would he do that? The Spirit does so many things. The Spirit has so many names in the Bible. Uh, He's the co-creator of the world along with the Father and the Son. He's the agent of regeneration and renewal. He is the helper, Jesus calls him, in the upper room discourse in in John 15, 16. Uh, He's sent to comfort our hearts, to keep us secure until we're reunited with Jesus. He's the Lord and the giver of life. That comes from the Nicene Creed that we confess here regularly. So why does Calvin think that the most important title of all is spirit of adoption? If that seems odd to us, well, then we have not yet properly understood the immense, even the unspeakable privilege that it is to be adopted by the God of heaven and earth, to be called his child. It's, it's a safe thing for a preacher to preface a sermon by saying we're talking about something that's unspeakably amazing. I'm letting you know that this sermon is going to pale in comparison to its subject matter. But that's, that's the reason that we think, well, that's odd. Why do you be given a spirit of adoption? It's that, it's that we don't understand what a privilege it is to be adopted and called God's children. Adoption is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. J.I. Packer said that adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. The highest privilege that the gospel offers. And then he goes on, just in case you misunderstand what he's saying, he says, let me make it really clear. He says it's higher even than justification. Higher even than justification. Well, that is quite a statement for a Calvinist to make, to say that this is greater than justification by faith alone through Christ alone. How, how could he say that? Well, it's a wonderful statement for Calvinists to make because it's what Calvin would say as well. Adoption is a higher privilege. It is a higher privilege and even the highest privilege because of the richer relationship with God that it affords. It is one thing, and it's an amazing thing, for God, the judge of all, when we are brought before him to acquit us, to say there is no condemnation, to wipe our slate clean, That's justification. That's amazing. But it's quite another thing for once the judge has said that to then say, now come to me and let me give you a hug and let me give you my home. That's adoption. The judge becomes our father. And what we're learning in the text before us today, verses 14 through 17, is that it is the Holy Spirit in particular who plays a vital role in this adopting work of God. So why is he called the spirit of adoption? There are four reasons that we're given in this text. 
four things that the Spirit does, without which we could not be the sons of God, or even if we were the sons of God, could not know that we were the sons of God unless we had the Spirit of adoption. Four things. First, verse 14, Paul says that the Spirit makes us live like sons of God. The Holy Spirit makes us live like sons of God. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. This does not mean that to be led by the Spirit is the basis upon which we are sons of God. It's rather the proof that we are sons of God. So the question is, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Well, if there's nothing mystical to this, this phrase that Paul uses. This is not a, you know, God whispered to me, God spoke to me. I felt led by the Spirit to do X, Y, or Z. Um, it's actually a lot more uh, boring than that and a lot more painful than that. Look at verse 14. How does it begin? It begins with that, that little word for, which is taking us back to a previous verse and saying this is the reason that, that Paul is introducing in support of what he's just said. Well, what did he say in verse 13? If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. We talked about that last week. Mortification. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Okay. And then he says now in verse 14, that's what it means to be led by the Spirit. It's to kill sin. Like I said, it's, it's not as exciting as I heard a voice. I felt, I felt this pull, this mystical pull to do X, Y, or Z. No, no, no. It's growing in sanctification. Growing in godliness. Dying to sin, living to righteousness. Uh, Paul's kind of echoing David, right, in Psalm 23. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his own name's sake. That's, that's the idea, to be led by the Spirit. To be led by the Spirit is to live in ways that please God. Living like God means that we look like God. The Holy Spirit imparts holiness to us. In a way that believers share a resemblance with our Holy Father. How do we know we're sons of God? Because we live like God, and in living like God, we kind of look like God. That's, that's not wrong to say. That's not blasphemous to say. We are made in the image of God, after all. That image is lost at the fall, but the Holy Spirit starts to, to bring that image back, right? I shouldn't say the image was lost. The image was marred at the fall. And then the Holy Spirit is, is doing this renewing work he's cleaning up what was what was marred at the fall so that people can say you do in fact look like your father i see the resemblance there's a holiness in us that answers to the holiness of our father and i want to say to you that here is one key one key to unlocking assurance of salvation in your life if you if you suffer doubts of knowing that you really are saved that you really are a christian that you really are a child of god Paul is giving us one way that you can be assured. And he's saying you can be assured of your salvation if if you grow in godliness. Because it's only believers who live like and look like the Father in heaven. If you are in some measure walking in righteousness, those paths of righteousness, the only explanation is that the Spirit is at work in in your life and you are indeed a child of God. Now, the question is not, are you perfectly righteous? That's not the grounds of your assurance. Are you perfectly righteous? The the question is, are you righteous at all? At all? Uh, the, The question is not, are you growing in godliness in every area of your life? The question is, are you growing in godliness 
in any area of your life, even a single one, one evidence of godliness is enough to prove that we have a relationship with God that is vital, that is saving, that could not happen unless we had the Holy Spirit in us. Just, just one area of your life. A pastor, Neil Quinn, gives a helpful example of this. He says that, you know, the, the, the pulse is a sign of life. But he says, let's say your pulse is so weak that you can't even perceive it. You don't feel it. You can't find it. Oh, no, you don't have this sign of life. But he says, you know what else is a sign of life? Breathing, right? So you, you, you can't find your pulse. You're searching for your pulse, and you're getting anxious, so you're starting to hyperventilate. That fact that you're breathing about not being able to find your pulse is proof that you are, in fact, alive, even if you can't feel your heart beating. One proof is enough. And in the same way, if you see one evidence of grace in your life, just one, that... That, you know, I'm more patient than I used to be with this. Maybe you're, you still have a foul mouth. You haven't grown there. But, you know, I'm more patient than I used to be. Or, or I've, I've, I've kicked this particular addiction. It's no more. But, you know, I, I, still, I still struggle um, with this other addiction. If there's just one growth of grace, one evidence of grace, that is enough to, to, to know that the rest will be there. Because God does not do partial regenerating work. He does not do partial regenerating work. He makes us completely new. So do you see any evidence of godliness in your life? Any evidence of righteousness? Well, that comes from being led by the Spirit. And if you're led by the Spirit, that means you are a child of God. So this is one of Paul's primary aims, aims in these verses, that he wants us to live in the liberating reality of being a child of God. He wants us not to be afraid of God, right? To not fear him, but to, to feel that we're one with him, that we have this acceptance by him. After all, what does he say in the remainder of that verse? He says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption. That's verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back in fear. Now, there's some debate as to the proper interpretation. Look at verse 15. Some debate about how to read this verse because the word spirit, same word in the Greek, is used two times. But in most translations, in the first instance, I'm looking at ESV. I don't know if yours is the same, but a lot of translations, the first instance of that word will not be capitalized, but the second instance will be capitalized. Which leads us to read the verse with a meaning something like this. You have not received a spirit that is a disposition, a, 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 an attitude, a way of life uh, of slavery, to fall back into fear. But you've received the person of the Holy Spirit. That's why it's capitalized. So that you can know you're adopted as a son of God. Now, that's certainly true. Believers have not received uh, or should not have a spirit that is a human disposition um, of timidity or fear, but one of boldness and, and self-control, as we're told in uh, Timothy. But it's also possible that both instances are actually in reference to the Holy Spirit. And I think that might make more sense because up to this point, every time Paul has used the word spirit, he's referred to the Holy Spirit. And that's pretty much the case uh, in, in the majority of Romans 8. It changes in verse 16, if you look at verse 16. But there it's so clear that he's not talking about the Holy Spirit when he says, um, 
When he says our spirit, well, clearly then that's not the Holy Spirit. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. But that doesn't happen in verse 15. And so if it's true that he's referring to the Holy Spirit in both instances, he's making an argument that that would go something like this. God did not give you his Holy Spirit so that you would be stuck in sin. That's not what the Holy Spirit does. That's not his job. Yes, the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, but he never enslaves you in sin. No, he actually gave you the Holy Spirit so that you would live like a son. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. That's the first thing he does. He makes us live like sons of God. Secondly, the Spirit helps us talk like sons of God. Paul writes, you have received, verse 16. I'm sorry, uh, second half of verse 15. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The by whom is critical. Paul saying that unless you have the spirit of God, you will never think of God as father and certainly not as your father. Uh, Therefore, our sonship is evidenced uh, in part through how we talk about God and how we talk to God, how we talk about God, when life is really difficult and uh, a trial comes, an unbeliever says, why would God allow this to happen? Why would God do this to me? Why would a good God allow this to happen, this bad thing to happen to innocent people? In that same moment of difficulty, what does a Christian say? A Christian says, I don't know why my father in heaven, allowed this thing to happen. I don't know why God, my Father, is is doing it. In one sense, the comments are identical. Both are struggling to comprehend divine will. But in another sense, the comments couldn't be more different. Because embedded in the one is the conviction that whatever is happening is happening from the hand of a father. And a father always does what is good for his children. And so that's, it's a completely different way to view the world. Changes your entire outlook on life when you believe the one controlling it isn't just God, but Father God. Father God. That's how we talk about him when we're his children. Our sonship is shown in how we talk about God, but also in how we talk to God. Paul says the spirit unlocks within us this instinct to turn to God and actually call him Father. Abba, Father, Paul says. He throws in an Aramaic word uh, right alongside the Greek word, Abba, Pater. Now, why does he do that? What does Abba mean? What's, what's that about? Well, you've likely heard it said that he uses the word Abba because Abba is, means something like daddy or pops, papa, something like that. And therefore, the lesson is that when we have the Holy Spirit, when we're sons of God, We can be very um, intimate with God, very familiar with him. Now, is that true? I think the point is true. Yes, that's absolutely true, that when we're children of God, we can come to him uh, with with no pretenses. Uh, He's our father. But I think maybe we've hopped off the tracks a little bit with our understanding of the word Abba. Uh, Old Testament scholar Michael Barrett up at Puritan explains the term helpfully. He says the Ab part of the word 
is the standard Semitic term meaning father. So we hear that in the, like the word or the name Abram means exalted father. The Ab is there. And then he says the Ba part, B-A, the Ba part of the word reflects the Aramaic way of making a word definite. In other words, Abba does not just mean father. It means the father. And so when a child uses that word in reference to their dad, they're saying something like, of all the fathers in the world, you are the only one for me. And that's what Christians get to say about God. Of all the helps in the world, of all the comforts, of all the fathers, you are the only one for me. Abba, Father. That could be part of the reason Paul uses that word here. I think, though, the main reason he uses that word, Abba, Father, he does the same thing in Galatians 4, is because this is exactly what Jesus says when he's at his darkest moment of all in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the term Jesus used for his Father in heaven, Abba. You remember the scene, right? The crucifixion is, is, is hours away, and he feels it, and he cries out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And so when Paul writes this here in Romans 8 or Galatians 4, he's taking us back to that moment, us as his readers, and he's saying, look, do you see that intimacy between the Son of God and, and, and God the Father? That's the kind of access you have. You can cry, Abba, Father, Paul says. The word, the Greek word for cry in Greek, it's a kratzo. It's an onomatopoeia, right? It sounds like what it means. Kratzo, cry. So when he says you cry, Father, it's not the, the cry from delighted children when the, the car pulls in. They say, Daddy's home. No, no, it's this Gethsemane cry. It's this cry through tears. It's the cry from the pit. It's a cry of desperation. It's that scream of the child that tells the parent all is not well, and it does not matter what the parent is doing. They drop everything to go find their child and help them. You can do that with God. Cry out to him in that way. You know, boys and girls, when you, when you scrape your knee or you, you, um, you fall out of a tree or I don't know what other crazy stuff you're doing that you get injured, nobody needs to teach you to go to mom and dad for help, right? That's just a natural instinct that when you get hurt, you cry out. And uh, parents in the room, you know that that's a, a really clarifying moment for, for who they like better. I've, I've been there, right? The daddy's here, right by to mommy, right? Okay. But nobody needs to, to teach a child that in that moment, mom or dad, they're the one that I, I need. Well, Did you know, boys and girls, there's actually nothing in you, naturally, that would tell you that when you're in trouble in life, God's the one you can go to. No, you would would have no inclination to go to God unless you have the Spirit. The Spirit, the Spirit creates a new instinct in the believer so that it is as natural for him or for her to go to God in need, just as natural as it is for the child to go to their parents when they're hurt. 
Without the Spirit, we would not do this because we would have no reason to expect to receive a warm welcome from God. Our sin would separate us from him. We'd think, why should he listen to me? I'm just a sinner. So when you're a Christian, although you have some of those same doubts, you have something greater than those doubts, and that is you have the spirit of adoption. And so the third thing that we see is that the spirit lets us know that we're sons of God. Because it's one thing to live like a son. It's one thing to even talk like a son. But it's really important that deep down in your heart you know you're a son. And it's not just a facade. It's not just fake. Know that God really is your father. That's when real assurance comes. When we know we're a son. And so we look at verse 16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Here Paul is explaining that that one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit to you, if you are a believer, is, is to witness. That is to give testimony, to stand up in the courtroom of your heart and, and give a stirring speech in defense of this one truth. God really is your father. Believe it. It's true. How does he do this? How does the spirit bear witness? How does he bear witness with our spirit to tell us so that we can know we're sons of God. It's something of a mystery how he does this. Maybe he brings to mind one day, kind of out of the blue, a promise of the scriptures that speaks to you in your need. Uh, you know, a, a verse that you hadn't thought of or read in months, years, and all of a sudden there it is for you. Um, or or he, he makes it so that a, a sermon one particular week, it's as though... You know, you were talking with, with me all week, and I'm writing down everything you need to hear, and then I'm going back to my study. I'm going, what sermon does, does so-and-so need? And then I preach it, and you feel like it's just for you. I don't do that. That's the Spirit. Or oftentimes it's just through sanctification, right, as we've already discussed. It's one of the ways we know that we belong to God. Sometimes, though, the Lord just blesses us with a sense of the Spirit's presence, that, we, that we're with him, that he's with us. And we just sense him. And we know that this idea that we have about being God's child, it's not crazy after all because we feel it. I'm not saying that that happens all the time or that even happens regularly, but sometimes that does happen. Richard Sibbs described it like the way you feel comforted when you see a close friend that you haven't seen in a long time. Before they even open their mouth, before you guys even start talking, you just feel better when, you're, when you see them. The Spirit sometimes does that. Just having him there makes us comforted. We want to be careful, though, because some people, I think, take this verse too far, and they say, unless you have, like, this added experience of the Holy Spirit, you are not saved. Unless you have this sensation, unless you have this feeling of tranquility or transport, you're not saved. But, but we have to bear in mind, the Spirit's presence is only a testimony to our salvation. It is not our salvation. Jesus is our salvation. The gospel is our salvation. The Spirit, though, testifies to that saving truth. It is hard to overestimate the blessing, though, of having the spirit of adoption telling our own spirit that we are, in fact, children of God. Because, as Sinclair Ferguson has said, there is one who knows that he cannot destroy the salvation that Christ has given to his people. He's talking about the devil. He says, there is one who knows that he cannot destroy the salvation God has given to his people. So he will, therefore, do the second best thing. He will destroy Christ's people's enjoyment of being Christ's. So when, the, when, when, when Satan, the accuser, 
tells us that we don't belong to the family of God. Praise the Lord that we have an advocate that is stronger than Satan or sin. That says, no, 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 you do not listen to that voice. You are a child of God. We need that, and we have it. And the reason we're a child of God, the reason we belong, is because the Spirit of God joins us to the Son of God. That's the very final thing this morning. The reason we belong is because the Spirit joins us to the, to the Son of God. We say, how are all of these things true of us, these wonderful blessings that we've discussed Because we're united to Jesus Christ. We are sons of grace um, who are united to him who is the son of God by nature and by right. We are heirs of God. Do you see that in verse 17? We're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What's his becomes ours because we are now fellow heirs with Christ. By the way... In the time that Paul was writing this, it was only sons who received the inheritance. That's why he so specifically says that we've received the spirit of adoption as sons, not the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters. He's, he's not being sexist. He's saying, no, because it all leads to our inheritance. It's a good thing that, that the Bible translations keep this as sons because... It's telling us something about what we receive. So do you understand what Paul's saying? He's saying that when you're a child of God, because you're united to the Son of God, you can expect to receive what only the King of Heaven could ever bestow and what only the Son of the King of Heaven ever could deserve. And yet we get it too. It becomes ours. All our pursuits and our priorities in life would would be rearranged if we actually got this if we actually understood this that that the treasures of heaven are are ours martin luther said we're not heirs of some rich and mighty man but heirs of god the almighty creator of all things if a person could fully appreciate what it means to be a son and heir of god he would rate the might and wealth of nations small change in comparison with his heavenly inheritance. He goes on to say, what is the world to him who has heaven? We have heaven. Brothers and sisters, we have heaven as our inheritance. And I think it might not be too much to say that this this is the entire reason that we are adopted by God. It's to receive an inheritance. That is the whole point that Paul is trying to make. And the reason I say that has to do with the context within which he is writing. Adoption was a well-known practice in the Roman world. It was codified in their legal system, but it's quite different from uh, adoption as we know it in our Western context today. Uh, why, Why generally do families adopt? They adopt for the sake of the child, the sake of this child who would not have a family unless he or she was adopted. But in contrast to a family adopting for the sake of the child, in the Roman times, a child was adopted for the sake of the family. What's that mean? Well, it was done most commonly uh, when there was no son in the family for whom the father could pass on his name, 
could give his inheritance. So he adopts a son for the sole purpose of perpetuating everything that he had earned and he had worked for in his life. So it doesn't all die with him. Uh, One scholar explains it like this, that ancient Roman adoption focused primarily on the continuity of a family name. A trustworthy heir was essential to secure this destiny, and for that reason, adoption occurred more commonly in adulthood, with time-proven adults rather than untested children. Roman adoption, therefore, was tactical. It was functional. It was protective of personal interests. It did not have in view the adoptee's social or emotional or even spiritual well-being. Rather, it served as the means to pass on wealth, name, and honor. I think that's adoption from a biblical perspective. Why are you adopted? Because God wants to bestow on you his wealth, his name, his honor. He has riches, and he wants to give them to us. And he does that by joining us to the only one who deserves them, Jesus Christ, his son. And Paul says something interesting, right? We're joint heirs with Christ. We get all that's Christ. Wow, it's amazing. He says, well, provided we suffer with him. It's kind of like a splash of cold water in the face. We were just talking about the treasures of heaven. Now we're talking about suffering. Well, is he saying that unless you suffer first, you aren't allowed to be an heir with Christ? No, he's not saying that. But he is saying that the path to heaven weaves its way through suffering. Through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14 tells us. Uh, It was that way for Jesus, Hebrews 2 tells us. It was fitting that he, God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, complete through suffering. This is how it works. Jesus had to suffer in order to bring us in. And then for us to get in, we suffer as well. We're united with him. Everything that is his is ours. That means his sonship is ours, but his suffering is ours too. In fact, the suffering is producing in us the glory that Paul also speaks of, right? Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. How do we get to that glory? That glory is produced, it's created through suffering. But if you keep your eyes on that inheritance, if you keep your eyes on that glory that will be yours soon enough, the suffering won't seem so bad after all. Or as Paul would put it, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is soon to come but that's the next verse and that's next time let's pray our father we thank you that we can call you our father and that even in the deepest and darkest moments of our distress we can acknowledge that this is who you are to us you are our father you never forsake us because you're our father and You will bring us through suffering to glory for the sake of receiving an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's kept in heaven. It's reserved for us. What wonder, what what grace. And this we receive through the one who deserves it all, Jesus Christ. We ask that your spirit of adoption would, in fact, dwell in our hearts so that we would know 
that what is Christ is ours, that we can call you our Father, that we are your children, and that this would give us much peace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.